when looking for the secular Christ, yes. where, where do we start looking? I think the place to start looking is in the popular culture, in the popular media, social media, YouTube. And we look for figures who are speaking of Christ or invoking Christian symbolism in that media. And there, I think there are three figures in particular who stand out, Jordan Peterson, Slava Zizek, and Richard Rohr. All three have big followings, and all three are fearlessly interested, engaging Christian symbols, but with very different intentions and with very different, uh, with very different results. So, shall we start with Peterson then? Right, yes. Okay, so Peterson... Jordan Peterson, somebody came to my attention because students kept telling me to listen to him because they heard me say things in class that sounded like Peterson. Peterson has really raised the bar in terms of uh, the level of intellectual debate in pop culture. You know, just think of his debate with Slava Zizek, whatever else we think about it, the debate that happened a couple of years ago in Toronto, whatever else we think about it, it was an extraordinary display of a moment where we could fill a sports stadium with people who are paying, I don't know what the cost, 40, 50 bucks a ticket to hear two men talk about, you know, the legacy of Marxism, the death of God theology. So this was a great, you know, a great, a great raising of the bar. And uh, so in that regard, I, I've, I've only got positive things to say. Also, P Peterson on, on instinctive religiosity, which is, I think, where he he really uh, got his start. You know, that, he wrote a book called Maps of Meaning, I think. Essentially picking up a theme that's very old and not all that radical, that you know, the human being is naturally religious. And our natural religiosity is expressed in recurring symbols, in archetypes, if you like. So Peterson, Peterson brought the tools of clinical psychology to that thesis and made a contribution and all that is fine and good. I, I myself believe that there is a religious instinct in the human being, that religion is inextirpable from human nature. Basically, I think Peterson believes with Carl Jung and others that the Christ is another archetypal expression of instinctive religiosity. The Christ is the archetype of the West. And I think that's why he's interested in the Christ. Peterson's interested in all things Western culture. He want, he's, a, he's a defender of the colonial legacy of the West in a certain way against, the, uh, against all of its critics. And uh, at the center of, of the Western, of Western culture, he's correct, is the symbolism of the Christ. And, but his defense of this Christ is to express it, is to explore it as an archetype. And I think this is fundamentally mistaken, not because we are not allowed to think that way. We can think whatever we like. We don't all have to be Christians. But, be, but because to think of the Christ as an archetype is not to think of the Christ at all. It's a semantic error. A Christ who's simply another instantiation of a divine principle alongside innumerable others, Buddha, Krishna, whoever, is not the Christ. In other words, it belongs essentially to this symbol that the Christ is singular. 
A Christ who's not singular, who's not the concrete universal, as Hegel puts it, is not the Christ. The Christ is a scandal and an event precisely because of his singularity, which is why the Jewish context is so important. You know, you shall have no gods but uh, Yahweh, and you shall make no images of, of Yahweh. And the Jews understood themselves to be a, a community set apart from paganism, which was the whole world outside of Judaism precisely because they did not have a plurality of gods. They didn't have an archetypal relationship to the divine. They had a relationship to a single divinity who is the god of the universe, but who for some reason chose them and revealed himself to them, revealed who he was to them. So the Jews don't know anything about God, about Yahweh, until Yahweh reveals it. The, the Jews have no collective, unconscious, archetypal access to Yahweh any more than they have you know, a philosophical uh, access to Yahweh. Revelation is at the center of, of the Jewish tradition. And then the Jewish tradition comes to this head in the Christian event, the Christ event, I should say, the Christ event in which some Jews and Greeks declare that Yahweh has become incarnated in the world, the transcendent, holy other God, um, who's so, so strange to us, so foreign to us, that one could not look upon him and live, as Moses says, that one, one was not even allowed to utter his name. The creator, the infinite creator, now appears among his creatures as one of them, in one place, in one man. That's the Christ. That's the event, right? So we can't speak about him as an archetype and still be speaking of at least Paul's Christ. staying a little bit with, with Peterson and, and Peterson as a guide for, for Christianity or where he goes astray. I mean, could you speak a bit more? Because, I mean, he spent a lot of time with this. He did, did this whole Bible study on YouTube, no, where he goes through the Bible from, from the beginning, I believe, and sort of looks at the Bible in a sort of symbolical way. Oh, yes, and I've, I've, I've watched some of them, and they're very good. And, of course, the Bible is full of archetypes. And the Bible is not a, you know, a single book. It's not a monolithic single text. You know, it's a collection of texts, historical texts. It's full of things. It's full of poetry and history. Um, and at the very end of it, we have this little appendix, which is the New Testament. So we can't simply speak of the Bible, you know, as, uh, you know, uh, void of archetypal significance or collective unconscious imagery. That would be ridiculous. And, and even, even the Christian revelation, the moment it gets expressed, you know, by Paul or by the gospel writers, the unconscious is at work. You know, we, we only have human language, so we bring human symbolism to the revelation, to express the revelation. So we call the Christ the Logos, the Word made flesh. That, that term Logos was a term in wide use in Hellenistic philosophies of religion at the time. It was Paul, Paul and John and others were using a language that they knew their pagan audience understood. So we're not saying that, this, that the Christianity has nothing to do with collective unconsciousness. We're saying rather that there is a logic to this particular symbol, the symbol of the Christ, which requires us to understand it as a singular event. This is not just about Christian triumphalism. If Peterson would follow this up, he would see that many of the things he finds so fascinating about the West, for example, our sense of history, 
our sense for uh, progress, our will to change the world rather than just accept it as a kind of eternal order, uh, our, our emphasis on the person and the irreducible individuality of the person and the doctrine of human rights, all of this is bound up with the logic of the symbol of the Christ as the singular. It's good that Peterson is bringing his YouTubers to the Bible. How could that not be a good thing? But in the end, I think Peterson is a devotee of what I would like to call the philosophy of human potentiality. And I'd like to distinguish that from the philosophy of human poverty. And I think it's the philosophy of human poverty that we get in the letters of Paul and which is at the heart of the Christ claim not the philosophy of human potentiality. And very much the new age and uh, the alternative religious movement, the wellness culture is all caught up in this philosophy of human potentiality. Uh, it's quite opposed to the philosophy of human poverty. Well, I, that makes me think of something. I, I read someone saying that, writing that there is no grace in the world of Jordan B. Peterson. There you go. And because the philosophy of human potentiality doesn't need grace, all you need is awakening. All you need is training, instruction. You just need to be liberated from your illusions. You have to withdraw your projections. It's all in you. You are divine. You're the divine. And insofar as in your ordinary consciousness you think that you aren't, your ordinary consciousness is illusory. It's, uh, it's a trick that your mind is playing on you. So you can use techniques to correct that, yoga, meditation, for example, or you can simply having a, an enlightenment experience. And then what you find yourself affirming is something that has been affirmed over and over again throughout the world of religion, all through the ages, particularly back into Hinduism, that the, the Brahman is Atman, that God is the soul and the soul is God. That's the philosophy of human potentiality. And it is deeply opposed to Paul's Christianity. Because in Paul's Christianity, we get the opposite thesis. We get the thesis that no, the human being is not potentially divine. The human being is actually fallen. Uh, if the philosophy of the human potentiality says we have all that we need, we're essentially divine and all that's required is awakening, the philosophy of human poverty says the opposite. We do not and cannot of our own efforts reach divinity. We're fallen. What is needed is something like a divine intervention. Basically, there are two predominant religious philosophies in human history, and they're the opposite of one another. And these two philosophies don't map onto, all, to, onto mainstream religions. Rather, they cut through all the religions. It's not as though all of Hinduism corresponds to the philosophy of human potentiality, or that all of Christianity corresponds to the philosophy of human poverty. It's rather that uh, we see these emphases, emphases everywhere. Certainly, 
there is a solid root to the philosophy of human potentiality in Hinduism, particularly in Vedanta. You know, the fundamental claim of Vedanta is that your, your individual consciousness, your sense of yourself as finite, as limited, as, as you know, a being unto death, as Heidegger put it, is an illusion because you are essentially Brahman. Your soul is divinity. And that relation should be relationship should be experienced in a non-dual moksha, an experience of transformation. That's very old, old stuff goes back to the Upanishads. That's not the whole of Hinduism. This idea of the, the awakening, the, the, the repressed and essential divinity of the human individual um, is, uh, is, is now very widespread in our culture. And many people cling to it because it helps them, defends them from, or or rescues them from their negative and uh, their negative and misanthropic Christianity that they grew up in. So there's also strains of this second philosophy in India as well, too. The philosophy of human poverty certainly has its roots in, in Christianity, in its foundational texts. And the thesis is that we do not, and we cannot, of our own effort, reach divinity. We are fallen. We need divine intervention. So it's pessimistic, it's tragic, but, you, but it also becomes a, a, a philosophy of redemption when it affirms that the divine has intervened and has rescued us from our fallen state. And we'll hear strains of that in Hinduism, for example, in Bhakti Yoga, where the whole emphasis is placed on, the, on, uh, on God as our savior, even in Buddhism, in, in the Shin Buddhist tradition, which is part of the Mahayana tradition. Uh, the idea is that the ego is so deeply ingrained in our psyche that we really cannot trust ourselves, our, our own desire for enlightenment. We're, we're, go we're going to twist it into something else. Therefore, we should rely entirely on other power. We should invoke the Amita Buddha to save us from ourselves. So th there you get uh, that emphasis of, of poverty. But I, th it is really in Christianity and, and in Pauline Christianity that you get this philosophy of human poverty redeemed, most emphatically expressed. You know, for St. Paul, um, we are just completely lost without the act of God saving us in Christ. Uh, there, there, was, there, was, there was no hope for us without Christ. We were... We were entirely uh, doomed without him. And, and, and what we receive in Christ is pure gift. And so Paul is constantly chiding with his disciples not to get puffed up with grace, with their, with their possession of the doctrine of salvation. He'll say to them, what do you have that was not given to you? What makes you so important? And Paul himself never speaks like a, like a Hindu sage who has realized through effort and technique the insight. It's rather something befell him. He was on the road heading the opposite direction when Christ besieged him. So this emphasis on intervention, direct divine intervention into a human situation that is totally going the wrong direction, that is the, that those are the oldest writings in the New Testament.
wondering about this sort of poverty versus the potential. Aren't they deeply, deeply linked? Are they to put against each other? When is it that clear cut as you're describing it now? Potential versus poverty. It is clear cut, and you're correct. There is a a solution to the dichotomy, which is a non-dual relation between them. That poverty and potentiality are not two. And in fact, that's precisely what you get in authentic mystical Christianity. We are, without God, hopeless, doomed, and lost. As Luther says, you know, we, what we call true is in fact false. What we call good is in fact evil. Luther doesn't believe in the instinctive religiosity of the human being, or if, if he was to say that there was something instinctively religious in the human being, it would be instinctively idolatrous, that what we call God is not God, or God appears to us in the opposite form as the crucified carpenter on the Roman cross. But with this intervention, it's not something that remains external to us, of course. It's a mystical intervention. And this is also central to St. Paul. And this is where Richard Rohr picks up on the cosmic Christ out of Ephesians and Colossians, that Christ had, the Christ event has altered human nature. And so the being that was once fallen and, and addicted to falsehood is now a redeemed being. Christ is now an imminent principle in human nature. So, so we're both, so, but this, it's, nevertheless, this is, the Christ is not a human potential. The Christ is a gift. Even if it's now an inalienable part of who we are. And Paul's clear that it's not simply those who hear the gospel who have been changed. It's everyone. Whether you, you've, ever, you've heard, whether you grew up hearing the letters of Paul or whether you grew up reciting mantras in a Tibetan monastery, uh, you, are, you are altered. You are now part of the Christ so in their, in their origins, these two philosophies are opposed to each other. And in the experience of redemption, they are, non, they are non-identical and non-different. They're non-dually one. And I think we all, this is why we see the two converge also in Mahayana Buddhism, for example. I think in the authentic Zen Satori experiences, you'll see expressions of this. But we'll still also see people who one-sidedly cling to one side or the other, right? We'll see, particularly in the New Age, a kind of one-side emphasis on human potentiality. It's all good, you know? There's nothing evil. It's just a way of thinking about it. That kind of talk, right? Um, it's all projection. And just as you also see, particularly in the Christian world, but I think also perhaps in the Jewish and Muslim world, an, an inordinately... Uh, an inordinately negative attitude to human culture and to human being, as though this wasn't, this hasn't been fundamentally changed. And I'm, not, I'm not a Peterson scholar. I just wanted to touch on this thesis that Christ is an archetype 
this thesis as being fundamentally an unchristian claim. And this, of course, is at the heart of Carl Jung as well, that Jung is actually not speaking in a Christian register when he affirms the Christ as an expression of archetypal unconsciousness, you know, the collective unconscious in which nothing new can happen, this perennial uh, stratum of, of, of knowledge and insight and wisdom expressed in religious symbolism, uh, which sends us an image uh, every aeon and has sent the West the Christ image. Uh, that is not that is not a, that is not Christian grammar. He's allowed to say it, of course, but we should not confuse it with the gospel. What it is is a, an expression of this philosophy of human potentiality, and that's why it's it's taking it's it's so popular in the contemporary culture. never say there's no grace in the world of Jordan B. Pierce. Grace is everywhere and is always victorious. Grace is everywhere and it's always victorious. So it's in Jordan B. Peterson. It is no doubt what pulled him out of his depression. So we have to distinguish between what's actually happening, and now I speak of course as a Christian theologian, but that's how I'm always going to speak on this, what's actually happening and what is being represented in the language with which certain people speak about the religious, the psychological, and so on, right? They're, they're two different things. Well, I think that when the, the statement, there is no grace in the world of Jordan B. Peterson, it wouldn't be about him personally, but in the world that he describes as he, as he speaks of the, yeah, and I mean, he has helped obviously many people to find back to some potential or, or a sense of uniqueness or a sense of you can, you know, take care of your life or you have a choice and such. He has done, I think, a tremendous work for, for many, many people there. But just the, the, the point of, of grace or, or the point of, you know, yeah, bowing to something outside of the, of the individual's uh, potential seems to be, uh, yeah, see, seems not to be spoken of in, in, in the same manner. Or maybe yeah, yeah, that's right. It, maybe it's harder to write a book about it. You know, he wrote this book, 12 Rules for Life. And, yeah. and then he wrote another book now that are more rules for how, your life, you know. Well, and this is crucial because the philosophy of human potentiality looks for technique, right? Whereas the philosophy of redeemed poverty, because not just the philosophy of poverty, you could simply be tragic. And that's Zizek, by the way. You know, human poverty without redemption which is far closer to Christianity than you might expect. Um, but uh, the philosophy of redeemed poverty doesn't have a technique. It doesn't have a rule. You know, this is Paul talking to the Jews who are, you know, obsessed with rule keeping. So it doesn't matter. The rules don't make any difference. This is about grace. If you need to keep a rule, go ahead, keep a rule. But don't pretend that your rule keeping makes you better or you're, you're progressing in knowledge of divinity because of some method that you have. There's no method for grace. Grace is an invasion of the finite world by the infinite. And this, this touches on a question concerning meditation and contemplation. Uh, I consider myself a contemplative Christian. You know, I'm very much with Richard Rohr in this regard. Uh, but there's, some, there's an important point to be made about contemplative Christianity, 
it doesn't look like contemplative Buddhism or contemplative Hinduism okay, in, in, in at least one respect. I mean, in, in, one, in many respects, the, the contemplative traditions have much in common and they're, they belong together. But there's one thing about the contemplative Christian path which is quite unique, and that is that it is a path without technique. There's no method required. There's no special yoga needed. If yoga helps, do it. But, you know, if maybe walking in the woods is the place where you hear the voice of God. Or maybe you've got to go out and serve your community until you're exhausted and beaten to the ground. It doesn't make any difference because we're not trying to alter our consciousness through method. We are rather trying to receive a gift that has already been given and is always always active, which is the grace of Christ redeeming the world on the Roman cross. 